This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to another episode of Lends Me Your Ears. This is the film podcast where we go and see something that is brand new or at least fresh in cinema and then connect it with older films and uh, classics and, well, far from classics. <laughs> and hopefully you'll see and hear something that, uh, hear about something you've not seen before. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer here in Halifax. I've got a blog. It's called Flaw in the Iris and you can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts writer with the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. Now today, we are going deep into spy territory, but not your typical spies. We've done that already, and not James Bond. We've done that too. We're doing it looking at spy spoofs, and we're also talking about the Johnny English saga, including the most recent iteration, Johnny English Strikes Again. So we're back. We're undercover. We're on a mission to look at spy spoofs and spy comedies on this week's Lends Me Your Ears. And uh, Karsten, when we started doing this, did you know that this was such a deep pool to dive into? <laughs> I didn't. You know, I've been a longtime fan of spy movies. I think the episode that we talked about spy movies was, for me, probably the most lovingly researched. Like, I think we watched maybe 15 or 20 features I think so. around that, and we, we crammed them all in. Um, and, of course, we're also fans of James Bond through the years. We grew up exactly at the right time to be fans of of that franchise, but but yeah, there it feels like there have been spy spoofs since there have been spy movies. The the, the comedic uh, opportunity for these kinds of thrillers clearly have been been out there and have been popularized from the get go. Yeah, in fact, if I think back, uh, I can. Uh, there's a Buster Keaton film called Sherlock Jr where he's kind of a detective slash spy, but he's got like exploding pool balls and there's like, <laughs> and he has all these undercover tricks to change costumes quickly. And it, it feels like maybe the, 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 the prenatal spy spoof movie. And then, uh, uh, you know, certainly as there have been wars, there have been spy movies to go along with them, Matahari and, and so on. So it, it seems like they've gone cheek by jowl uh, until James Bond kind of tore the roof off the whole thing. And, and all of a sudden there was a flood of these things, um, you know, from the 1960s onwards. In fact, it almost feels like there's as many spy spoofs as there are legitimate espionage uh, dramas uh, and, and action pictures. Of course, we talked about James Bond. We talked about Harry Palmer. Um and all those uh, John Le Carre John, movies, smiley movies, and, yeah. and so on and so forth, uh, and those are great. But uh, but clearly, uh, you know, almost from the get go, like you say, there was uh, there's as many films uh, taking making fun of them, and it, it, it wasn't just in films too. There there were like James Bond parody L- comedy LPs and books. Uh, there was a series of they had a, it was like a Jewish version of James Bond, so it'd be like Locks Finger. You know, and from Russia with Kanish and that kind of thing. Wasn't wasn't there a uh, a movie with uh, Sean Connery's brother Neil, where he made I think he made it in Italy or something like, and it has oh, a multiple yes. various names like Operation Kid Brother. And, yeah, it's got about three different titles. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's a film that probably became best known as an episode of Mystery Science Theater three thousand as uh, under the title Operation Double Double O Seven. Um, oh, that's but, not confusing. No, not at all. But it was also, yeah, Operation Kid Brother, which I think might be the original title. But there's also, um, oper- oh, there's one called OK Connery is another uh, t- title for the film. So <laughs> that's three- going to be the worst. Yeah, that's that's pretty bad. There are three titles, but it's got a hilarious theme song by uh, Ennio Morricone, if you can believe that. And it's got several actors from the world of 007. Um, Moneypenny is in it. Oh, Lois Maxwell, sure. I think... Uh, 
uh, Bernard Lee. Bernard is, Lee is plays yeah. M is in it, yeah. and uh, and the, and uh, Thunderball. Uh, Adolfo Celli, I think maybe his name is. I, I think I'm blowing that one, but anyway, he was the, the bad guy from Thunderball. Shows oh, okay. up in it as well. Oh, and uh, the the the, uh, the the star, the female star of uh, From Russia with Love, who didn't have much of a career after From Russia with Love, but she shows up as well. So it's kind of like this weird. It's like a Bond convention almost, and <laughs> with you know Sean Connery, Connery's brother Neil kind of standing in for Sean. So right. Um, Probably best watched as an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. I never watched it uh, otherwise. I'm sure that the version they show is cut down in some way, but I don't know that it makes any sense in its entirety either. But well, uh, I think that's a commonplace thing with a lot of these comedies. Is they don't really make a lot of sense. They're just playing. No, they don't off have the, to. Playing off the uh, the image and and that we're all so familiar with. And I, let's face it, Austin Powers probably is the most well known and sure. well beloved franchise of spy spoofs. Through, I mean, they were ubiquitous. Everyone loved those films. They were they were big hits. Uh, and then and then more recently, The Kingsman is another popular franchise. It's much more R rated and violent. And I uh, I can I'm a sort of a little bit ambivalent about Kingsman. I, I found it entertaining, but I didn't I didn't love them. And I I, uh, I the the line between spoof and action there uh, is is actually quite thinly drawn. You know, you they 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 kind of those films kind of work in both both ways, both seriously and as a comedy. And I, I guess that's to be admired. Certainly the action side of things on those movies is, is pretty great. But I hadn't seen any of the Johnny English films before we <laughs> sat down to uh, talk about them. So I had to sort of go back and watch the first two and then, of course, catch the new one in cinemas, which I hope it's still in cinemas by the time people are listening to this because uh, I don't think it's it, – it's basically been reduced, I think, to one cinema here in Halifax now. Um, I don't know that this has been a big hit, but clearly through the years they keep coming back to it. So there's there's money to be made uh, with these spy spoofs uh, globally, I expect. And I, I imagine that Rowan Atkinson being – so recognizable from his super popular Mr. Bean series could get this thing made and get the sequels made too. There's there's enough, there's lots of love for, for that guy. And I think what makes yeah. the films watchable at all, if they're watchable, I don't think they're great movies by any stretch, is his gift for physical comedy. Yeah, it, it's almost like they're kind of throwing Mr. Bean fans a bone with without him having to, to be that character. I, I don't know how his feelings are towards that character. I'm sure he's probably tired of doing it by now after many, many short films and two feature films. And, and this is probably comes out of a desire to do something a little different, to play a character that's maybe not quite as bumbling or, you know, maybe somebody who at least thinks he's suave and gets to drive around in a beautiful Aston Martin as he does in, and which apparently is his own personal car in Johnny English strikes again. Um, I think they keep them pretty family friendly. I, you know, I, I went, uh, I remember going to this and thinking that uh, I think there's one shot of a bare butt for comedic effect at the yes, end. Yes. At the end. I remember, I and, unfortunately remember that. Yes. But I remember <laughs> seeing a similar joke in a, in a pink Panther movie in the seventies as a kid. So, you know, it's, that's about it. And, you know, the, thankfully, you know, it tends to avoid bathroom humor for the most part. I think I think they try to keep them fairly kid friendly, maybe even more so than than the Bond films. Yeah. Are. Oh, I, I think you're right. I think I think especially in British culture, the Bond movies are considered to be sort of family friendly movies. Except when you when you look back at at them from in today, they're edited for TV versions. <laughs> yes, yes, they definitely that. But they're still 
politically, I mean, in our more enlightened political age right now, well, to some degree anyway, uh, we can see that some of that stuff is is pretty problematic, whereas these movies are absolutely made for family friendly. They're, they're absolutely, uh, they're, they're not going to, they're not likely to offend anybody, though I guess... Now that I'm on that subject, I'm thinking about the second movie. There are some sort of cultural oh, jokes yes, well, from the second it's... movie that I felt were actually pretty obnoxious. But but the, putting that aside, I can see what their intention is. Well, there's a lot of that in British humor anyway. So no matter what decade you pull it from. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it should be noted, like, the Bond films, of course, they start out as fairly serious, gritty you know, action adventure movies. But humor, by the even by the third film, uh, the humorous tone kind of turns out to be what kind of sets it apart from its competitors that there's that wry sense of humor that starts to slip into self-parody uh even before roger moore you look at diamonds are forever and there's a lot of kind of fey humor nudge nudge wink wink kind of stuff happening there and then in roger moore you get uh need i say uh man with the golden gun slide whistle car jump or (laughs) or uh that's right or moonraker uh venice pigeon double take when he gets into the the gondola that turns into a hovercraft i mean uh you know they started to become comedies you know i mean by the time he gets to octopussy and and we have uh it ends with double seven dressed up as a clown i think is is my personal feeling of the low point of the series yeah yeah that's fair that's fair. I know a lot of people love that movie, but but yeah. yeah, no, you're right. There is in some cases you wonder whether or not uh, the spoof is taking over the franchise. Of course, they've made many efforts to try to pull it back from that. In fact, uh, I think Daniel Craig has gone on the record as saying the reason that the recent Bond movies are so serious is because of Austin Powers. Oh, sure. Because they wanted to get away from all of that and try and bring some more sense of realism, some more sense of actual stakes to the to the story, make them thrillers. Yeah, and, and well, and certainly the Timothy Dalton films are were kind of a, a reaction against the Moore era as well, yeah. you know, to get him, although bringing in Wayne Newton as a cult leader I, I don't know what they were thinking there but in <laughs> it, the, the second one a, anyway so let's talk but about yes, let's talk Johnny English. let's talk Johnny English this is the third film of the franchise it's Johnny English for those who don't know it's about a, he's a, he's an MI7 agent by the time he's got the third movie he's the former MI7 agent MI7 being a, a fictionalized version of the British Secret Service um, he's teaching ge- in geog- a geography at a private school where he's actually secretly looking for recruits to the service now um, Johnny English is a, an agent who is bumbling, he is he's completely inept, and yet he somehow manages to get the job done every time. Uh, and that's, I think, what's so kind of adorable about him. He he is he's come he's totally clueless, but somehow he he does succeed, and he succeeds through accident and through good luck and good fortune. He doesn't get himself killed. Um, here he is brought back to the the fray because uh, a hacker has revealed the identities of every British agent in the field and he is brought back and of course he decides he's going to be the analog agent <laughs> because you know he doesn't really understand technical stuff and digital stuff anyway so he's going to be totally analog and that way the bad guys can't track him and he teams up with his old buddy Boff who is uh, played by Ben Miller he was sort of his sidekick from the first film he isn't in the second film the second film the sidekick is played by Daniel Kalua, who of course now is an Academy Award nominated actor and presumably is just a little too busy <laughs> yes. to come back for the third film. Uh, but Boff is back and uh, they set out to track down the hacker in the French Riviera. Instead, they find Russian agent Bulatova, played by 007 veteran Olga Kurilenko. Uh, she's great. 
And uh, this, while the deeply stressed British Prime Minister, Emma Thompson, plans for a G12 conference in Scotland and asks for security assistance from um, an American Zuckerberg-esque digital wizard played by Jake Lacey. His name is Jason Volt. Of course, no prizes for anyone who guesses who the villain is here. <laughs> no. Uh, from the get-go. Now, this is a movie... I. I uh, now, having watched all three of them, I think maybe the third is maybe the least interesting for me personally. They're all about the same quality-wise. I think the second one for me was my favorite because I think it felt more indebted or more more like the, the Daniel Craig Bonds. Like, that's what they were riffing off of. And I think as a result, as an action movie, it's a little more satisfying. But the humor throughout these films is about standard there's there's a, a few gags here and there that work really well there are a lot that don't at all uh, you know but i mean you know humor is subjective uh i i generally i they are entertaining i won't deny that and there's a scene in the third movie made my favorite where the other retired agents show up looking for work <laughs> and they're played by michael gambon edward fox and charles dance uh and it was great to see them i was like oh my gosh are these three guys going to be in this movie it would be so so great if this was like the senior secret agent meeting but uh as it happens they're just cameos uh so it doesn't really <laughs> yeah. doesn't really work out that way uh yeah i thought they were setting up a great premise like like have johnny english supported by the the older agents i thought oh this is great this is really cool to see these guys kind of playing aging spies maybe riff on those kind of British senior citizen comedies that we seem to the, the exotic Mary Gold Hotel for spies or whatever. But, yeah, yeah. But that, yeah, you're right. It was like a one scene gag, and it wasn't a particularly funny gag because you could see it coming a mile away. And I just thought, well, maybe they'll come in at the end and they'll save the day. And uh, spoiler alert, they don't. Um, so I thought they set up a great premise there that they kind of wasted. And then I thought, you know, like I also thought like the scene at the start where he's got the kids and they're doing the training mission, I thought yeah. was a great sequence because at first you don't know their kids and uh, and then it turns, you know, turns out they're, they're, he, he's training them to set traps and things like that. And they turn out to be really good at it. I thought, okay, well maybe we'll bring in the kids at some point, you know, he'll like call them in, um, you know, on a field trip or whatever to, to take down the bad guys at the end. That doesn't pay off either. I just know it's they, true. They set up two great premises, which would have been better than what the plot ultimately is. Yeah. And, and then completely waste them. No, I totally agree. And I, you know, I'm sure it's budgetary. The, the, the seams tend to, even though they, they do get some exotic locations in and stuff, I think the seams, uh, of the budget do tend to show yeah. some, some bad green screen and stuff like totally. that. Um, but having said that, it, you know, Atkinson is always fun to watch, you know, cause he just has the most expressive face in comedy really. And, uh, you know, when he gets to cut loose, like the, there's a scene where he takes some, he thinks he's taking sleeping pills, but he takes, these like the most powerful energy pills in the world. And he winds up on the, on the, the dance floor, you know, basically out raving everybody else there. Yeah. Uh, that is pretty funny. That that's probably the funniest scene in the whole movie as far as, 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 as I could tell, but, um, you know, so maybe more of that would have been great or, or just to kind of, you know, tentpole the story as it goes along. Because once it gets into the machinations of the evil plot and the bad guy taking the world hostage and, you know, that kind of uh, boilerplate, then it's, then you know, and, and, and Johnny English walking around in a suit of armor, um, you know, it has a real sort of been there, done that kind of feel. Like, I just feel like I saw Peter Sellers do this, uh, you know. 40 years ago or whatever it was. And in fact, there's a gag where he jumps in, he, he commandeers a car that's a, a driving instructor car. And I know for, that's totally in, either in a James Bond or a Clouseau film. Like I, I, I know that either Blake Edwards or the Bond franchise have taken that gag and, and run with it previously. So just 
you know, that particular moment, I'm, I'm, you know, the retread feels like, okay, well, now you're just doing a joke that was in a serious or semi-serious kind of film. And, uh, and so, you know, it, it, it kind of builds up a little bit of ill will towards this movie for me. Yeah. Well, already we're in the third film, so there's going to yeah. be a feeling of deja vu, unfortunately. Uh, I think I will point people to the second film, Johnny English Reborn from 2011, as being the best one. It, it has the biggest sort of most uh, high name supporting cast, including Julian Anderson, Dominic West and Rosamund Pike, who, of course, was is another 007 veteran uh, and Daniel Kaluuya, who I mentioned earlier. Um, it's it's more of an action movie, and it has a Q-type character who I really like named Patch Quartermain, played by <laughs> Tim McInery, who, of, of course, for fans of Blackadder, yes, of exactly. which I am a fan of, definitely. That, Percy. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, he no, he was, wait a second, wasn't he, wasn't he, oh, Percy Darling? Wasn't he Captain Darling? Oh, Captain Darling, yes, you're right. He was Captain Darling in the fourth, Blackadder goes forth. Uh, and he's, he play, yeah, so he plays the Q character here, and it's just great to see him and Rowan Atkinson together again. As I mentioned, yeah, I'm less of a bean person, more of a Blackadder person, uh, as it goes. <laughs> There's also a great segment later in the film where English is under mind control, and he's very susceptible to the suggestion, and then Cameo's word up comes on, and, you know, he sticks his hand in the air like he doesn't care and it's that's that's very funny uh but all of which to say is uh yeah i I think the second one is the best there's a great scene takes place in in hong kong where uh where english is chasing this parkour uh, character over the buildings and the, the guy is doing these incredible stunts and, and English is just sort of walking through. He's strolling across the buildings, <laughs> you know, not having having to do any of those stunts. Very much uh, a play on uh, Casino Royale, the 2006 version with Daniel Craig, uh, which has a great parkour scene in it. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I... Um, yeah, I thought I thought the second one was probably the the most fun. The first one, uh, I, you know, I mean, he you've got you've got uh, John Malkovich as the villain, which is probably the the biggest draw. He, he's and he's speaking in a he's a he's playing French, so he's speaking in an accent even more outrageous than his accent from Rounders, where he played a Russian card shark. Uh, it's extremely silly stuff. Uh, there is a decent car chase through London in the first one with another lovely Aston Martin, a newer one than the one from from uh, Johnny English Strikes uh, Again, Strikes Back. I forget the titles now. Um, <laughs> I think it's Again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it's sort of like, I guess... If you uh, if you felt like you wanted to do the, all three of them, then you know more power to you. The one thing that's also interesting about the first film, one of, two of the writers are Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who are the writers in have been writing Bond movies going back to Pierce Brosnan. So it's just it's funny to think of these guys, you know, sitting around the table coming up with plots for actual James Bond movies and then thinking of jokes that they can't use because they've changed so much. <laughs> exactly, and then yeah. saving them all up for this this new, this separate, you know, franchise, Johnny English. Yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, they're family friendly. They usually have a few sequences that show Rowan Atkinson's physical comedy skills off to their best advantage. And, you know, they'd be good on a plane or something. <laughs> like, like that's, I mean, you know, when you need, when you're kind of stuck somewhere and you need to watch something, you could do worse than Johnny. Not a high recommendation for me, but, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed bits of it along the way and it's nice to see some familiar faces. Um, you know, and uh, I thought Emma Thompson was great as the prime minister. Yeah, she uh, is. She can't. She can't not be great. No, and you know, and she plays. You know, she plays it as this kind of modern, high-strung bureaucrat kind of character, and I kind of like that aspect of it. And uh, you know, it's, and 
you know, and, and Olga's kind of fun as, as the Russian agent that he eventually has to work with to, to stop uh, whatever the plot was. I can't remember something about taking control of the world's computers. Um, and uh, but, the, you know, plot is not the main point for watching these. So uh, the virtual reality scene was was kind of fun. That That's an extended sequence in the middle of the, the third one. That's uh, that's also got some fun physical comedy and some some surprises. So, uh, yeah, mild recommendation. Uh, certainly, you know, if you enjoyed one and two, uh, three is, isn't uh, the worst thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> So this is was a, a 60s spy spoof that I hadn't even heard of, Stephen. This is part of the reason I even do this podcast, because you tell me about <laughs> movies that I should be seeing. And sure enough, many of them are amazing. And Where the Spies Are from 1966 was a real charmer, an anachronistic uh, spy picture, to be sure. But uh, David Niven is country doctor Jason Love, who years before had helped out an old army buddy with an intelligence issue. And that army buddy now is in charge of the Secret Service, so it needs him to, to, for another favor. So he, he is convinced to go to Beirut on a, on a spy mission, uh, and he's convinced to do this because he is a car lover. He wants, an, he wants a, a very rare cord, which is a classic vehicle, and uh, he's convinced to do this. And uh, the, the charm of this, I mean, in some ways it's very much a straight-ahead spy movie, but David Niven's character, Doctor Love, he uh, he he his whole attitude is so like, oh, this I'm just doing this for fun. At a certain point, of course, it gets more serious and people start to die, and he gets you know he he discovers he has a real aptitude for spy work. But uh, the first act is him just being like, oh, I'm having a good time, and he stops in Rome, uh, where he meets uh, Francoise Dorliac. Uh, if I'm pronouncing her right, her name right. Doliac, yeah. Uh, this the older sister of Catherine Deneuve. I didn't even realize Catherine Deneuve had a, had a sister, but apparently a tragic story there. I'm sure you can talk a little bit about that, Stephen. Yeah, she she basically she was an older sister of Catherine Deneuve. They did make uh, at least one film together, The Young Girls of Rochefort, Rochefort, uh, which was the sequel to uh, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Uh, same director, and it's a musical. And Gene Kelly's actually in the sequel. He wow, I didn't kind of shows up for for. Uh, extended cameo, I guess, if you want to call it that. I guess if you want to make a tribute to Hollywood musicals, might as well bring in Gene Kelly um, in the late 60s. But um, And it was only within a year of making this film, I think, she died in a, in a car accident. So it was very sad. But um, Yeah, she was 25. She's she's in a handful of, of really fine French films and uh, and worth uh, seeking out if, if you can find those Jacques Demy films that she's in or... Uh, or, or Where the Spies Are, which uh, is, uh, we, we watched it, uh, it was actually on TCM, Turner Classic Movie showed it um, not too long ago, but it's also available as a DVD from the Warner Archive. And it, it is a lot of fun. I, I get the feeling that David Niven may have been in the running for Bond early on, maybe when they were first trying to cast it. But, um, and of course, as we'll see, he gets to play an aging James Bond uh, a little bit later. But, uh, but, but here, uh, you know, he... You, you certainly buy him as a dashing man of action. That, that seems to be kind of his his thing. Uh, and uh, even though he's a bit older here, he he, he pulls it off. And it, the, the whole idea, and of course, as as we mentioned uh, in the previous segment on Johnny English, um, the whole idea of pulling an agent uh, who's not known to the enemy because uh, a previous agent has been compromised. I mean, I feel like maybe whoever wrote Johnny English Strikes Again had a look at this film and and basically used that same plot point um you know pulling uh this pulling him out of not necessarily retirement but ob- certainly obscurity 
and uh, and sending him off to Beirut to uh, to find out what's going on there. It's kind of the same story of Casino Royale too. The the elder agent. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this yeah. is something they do again and again. Which is funny because it's the same director, uh, Val Guest, who was a British director who did comedies, but also uh, did some work for Hammer Horror. Um, he was a pretty versatile guy, and his films tend to be pretty fun. Like, uh, you know, he, he seems to inject some personality into what he's doing, whether it's a sci-fi thing or a, a comedy or what have you. And uh, and uh, Wolf Mankiewicz, who worked on the screenplay, also worked on the screenplay of the non-official Casino Royale of the late 60s. So it's, the, it's almost like they went from this... The success of this film, I guess, led to them being hired to work on the Casino Royale Bond spoof that came after. But 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 this is really really charming. It's got a lot of the typical uh, spy stuff. There's got some secret devices. There's a whole thing about watches that have special inscriptions on them and have secret transmitters hidden in them and all that stuff. And I kind of love '60s lo-fi spy tech, like like the stuff that they're ooing and awing over in original '60s spy movies, whether it's James Bond or whoever. Or Flint or whatever that that you know it's like stuff you can probably get at Radio Shack today or something like that. Those weaponized the pens. Image. Yeah, and, exa- uh, yeah, exactly. A, Another, a lot of talk about sodium pentothal. Yeah, yeah, it was the go-to accessory <laughs> to have something with sodium pentothal in it back in the 1960s. The truth serum, uh, and and uh, it's you know the ret- it's nice because it's it's retro because it's actually made in the 60s, but it just has that cool, elegant style about it in the set design and old airports and lots of cars. And, and Niven, of course, is just super chill. Like, he is, he has a presence which you can just trust him. You know he's got everything in hand, even when things look rough. And, uh, yeah, he's really great here. And one of the joys of where the spies are, not only do they shoot in actual Lebanon, they shoot in Beirut for location cinematography, they go to Canada late in the running. <laughs> of course, they don't actually go to Canada. No. They go to a studio. But uh, but Halifax has a little cameo role on the map, um, and, uh, and they wind up in Saskatchewan, uh, well, not just Halifax. <laughs> they, they they linger on a map of Nova Scotia for for long enough to be able to point out like Mahone Bay and Lunenburg and and uh, Digby like like because I guess the the plane that's the Russian Dove of Peace plane that he's been uh, abducted on is flying over Nova Scotia and then crossing over to Saskatchewan. Yeah, somehow I don't yeah. know weird flight path, but from <laughs> from, from Cuba. But uh, yeah, the whole the big climax takes place on a frozen airfield in Sask- remote. Saskatchewan, where everybody's uh, living in huts with sled dogs. Yeah, and the the Canadians actually have genuine Canadian accents. I I, I appreciated that. Um, but uh, yeah, this is this is lots of fun, and it has a very jazzy soundtrack, very much more playful than your average Monty Norman or John Barry. But you know, which leads us, I think, directly to Casino Royale when its famous Burt Bacharach music. Yeah, um, and Herb Albert and the Tijuana Press. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I hadn't Date, seen dates it instantly. I hadn't seen Casino Royale, but I was really, um, I mean, I'd heard many stories about how bad it was, but watching again, especially on Blu-ray that you loaned me. Thank you again, Stephen. Uh, how much fun the film actually is. It was directed by five different directors, so it does feel totally chaotic. It doesn't really have a lead character. It has multiple leads. People like Peter Sellers show up and then vanish for big chunks of the film, um, uh, Woody Allen, uh, and David Niven. Again, here he is playing uh, Sir James Bond, the original James Bond, accordingly to the story. And he is, he is, uh, and then all these secret agent, uh, the spy heads show up and try to get him back in the game. And he's very much not interested. And he's, in fact, kind of, his nose is out of joint because the current James Bond 
is such a sex maniac and he feels like his good name, his reputation has been been skewered by this because he's he's very chaste and very respectable and not into any of that. But uh, when when things change, of course they do, he does get back into the uh, spy game. M is is killed in a weird scene, uh, I guess with a with a missile mishap uh, and a, a toupee that goes flying. And uh, and it sends James uh, Sir James to Scotland where he runs into Deborah Carr doing a Scottish accent and a lot of other Scottish jokes and and then from there on really it the plot is just is almost impossible to follow at least i felt like if i looked away for two minutes i have was completely lost yeah, where are we now um yeah it is uh, it, it is uh, but it, it it involves matahari who i guess james sir james had a relationship with which produced a young woman and she's also a spy and a lot of familiar faces um you know, you've got Woody Allen as James Bond's nephew, Jamie, Ursula Andress, Orson Welles as Le Chiffre, uh, William Holden, George Raft, Jean-Paul Belmondo. I mean, it just goes on and on. Oh, Jacqueline Bisset as Miss Goodthighs, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and the jokes are a little more ribald, but I really enjoyed how self-aware the film was. They are making fun of the Bond franchise, even though the Bond franchise at that point was only maybe five years, five or six years old. Yeah. They are totally making fun of the sexism, the colonialism, the um, the general, like they're just having a good time with it as they jump off into their very 60s. I mean, this, this is an incredibly time-dated film. I mean, as much as... Uh, I don't know the party or head the monkeys film like it has it has all those aspects of the 60s that you would think of when you think about big movies from the era which I think makes it more entertaining now than it was when it was released because this film was was trounced my parents actually saw this actually it'd be would be 50 years ago this month I think uh, when they saw it at the Mayfair Cinema in Dartmouth which no longer exists that building burned down at some point I think after after it had stopped being a theater but um, it was a second run theater in downtown Dartmouth it would be nice to have a movie theater on Portland Street now. But anyway. Um, sure would. Uh, and it had it actually had two screens. There was like a main theater and then there was like a smaller theater around the corner, but it was the same building. Very, very strange. Um, probably had the same projection booth pointed in two different directions. But um, but they didn't like it. I mean, they'd seen the Bond films as they'd come out up to that point. And then they went to see Casino Royale because I, th- I think maybe people were being sold a bill of goods when this was... I think people actually went to this thinking it was a legitimate James Bond movie um i mean the books were popular before the movies but they became even more popular after the movies um because of course fleming had died around the time of thunderball yet here were all these other james bond adventures in book form and uh you know the the pan paperback sold like hotcakes and of course casino royale was the first of the books so i think people went to this thinking they were going to see something like the book of casino royale uh it was quite widely read and of course it's nothing like uh, there is a casino there is a le Chiffre played by orson welles who you plays think baccarat yeah play, they play baccarat and you think he's going to figure heavily into the plot and not so much really but um nothing features heavily in the plot. no that's true <laughs> and of course you know he's sharing scenes with peter sellers uh, where apparently neither of them are on the set at the same time. They apparently there's this is a bad blood between Orson Welles and Peter Sellers for some reason. Um, maybe because Peter Sellers was rude to him or stayed in character. Who knows? Like I don't think anyone's ever gotten to the bottom of why they didn't get along. But they had to do all their scenes with body doubles and over the shoulder shots and and just all these tricks to kind of make it look like they're actually having a conversation. And that's one of the more famous stories from the set of that film. Uh, just to give you an idea of what a nightmare it was to make and put together. And it does have that 
throw anything at the wall and see what sticks kind of feel. But some of the stuff that sticks, it, it is pretty fun. Um, I kind of like the stuff with Deborah Carr. It's very silly. It's like a Scottish spy training school. And there's also a whole sequence set in, I think, East Berlin. Right. Where all of a sudden the style of the film just changes drastically. Like all those pop art colors go right out the window. And all of a sudden it's like a gray, black and white, German expressionist film. Yeah, and, and Ron, Ronnie, one of the two Ronnies, I uh, was at Ronnie Corbett shows up yeah. as this sort of sniveling uh, uh, agent type and uh, is obsessed with the young Matahari. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, they, we keep opening doors to rooms where people are doing strange things and the colors are all glowy. And it's, uh, yeah, the psychedelic edge is definitely a part of it. Yeah, so I'd, I'd recommend, you know, uh, seeing this, uh, this might, you know, even though I, I don't tend to recognize, recommend watching films in an altered state, this might actually be one of the handful that's that it might be preferable. And now we can legally do so, Stephen. So maybe we should. Maybe we should have like an episode <laughs> about what movies are fun to watch while high on our legally available uh, cannabis. Yeah, not in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> um, now you watched. Speaking of of other spoofs from the '60s. I watched Our Man Flint a little while ago. I can say a few things about that. You watched the Matt Helm movies with Dean Martin. Yeah, I haven't seen... I've, I've seen Our Man Flint, but not in a long time. But um, but yeah, I watched all four Matt Helm movies. Whoa. And, and yeah, you, that, really, you really paid the price. That was, that was punishing. I, I, I thought I would at least enjoy it because I, I think Matt Helm was... I mean, obviously going into making Austin Powers... Uh, um, you know Mike Myers and his and his uh, his Jay, uh, Jay Roach I think was his director and maybe co-writer. Anyway, I'm pretty sure they watched every '60s spy movie there was because the, the beauty of Austin Powers is that it really loves its subject matter and really kind of does its research in terms of of the movies that it's kind of drawing from and making fun of. Um, and clearly, the Matt Helm films were uh, in that realm because I keep seeing I saw a few things that were clearly borrowed for Austin Powers. And, and I guess maybe they're counting on most people not having watched these since they came out or not having bothered to watch them at all. Uh, and uh, yeah, Dean Martin uh, is Matt Helm. It was very, you know, in a, a pulp fictiony kind of secret agent, American secret agent. Um, the books for the most part were serious. They're they're I mean, they were obviously copied on the bond model and the, of course the bond books are, are quite serious. They're whatever humor is in them is very either mean spirited or racist probably or homophobic. Um, so, uh, I think the Matt Helm books were kind of in the same vein, maybe not as, you know, politically incorrect as the, as the bond novels, but, um, you know, they were not taken seriously at all for the four films. And I can't believe they made four films because it's, you know, the first three are basically the same movie made over and over again with a slight change of scenery from film to film. Although Dean Martin refused to travel, uh, so there's a lot of back projection and really obvious doubles, um, scattered throughout the films. Like even just for getting out of a car, they'll have a double just because Dean Martin didn't want to spend any time in France or whatever. Um, and then the fourth and the, for the fourth one, they ditch pretty much all the supporting cast of the first three films. And he's got a new boss and, you know, new secretary and, and, and it's, you know, because it's late, now we're getting towards the end of the 60s and it's a bit darker and maybe more violent. In fact, um, the fourth one, The Wrecking Crew, it might be worth watching just because Bruce Lee was the uh, fight uh, specialist who worked on the film. No kidding. I don't think he's in the film. I, I watched it and I, I thought, well, maybe he'll show up in a fight scene or something. But but there is a lot of karate and hand-to-hand combat, in, including some between two of the female co-stars, that, that looks pretty authentic and pretty, like, 
pretty tough looking uh, fight stuff. So obviously Bruce Lee earned his, his paycheck uh, working behind the scenes on the fourth one. Um, doesn't make it any better, really, but at least the, you know, the fight scenes are you know a little tougher, a little more gritty. But 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 Dean Martin pretty much waltzes through these films. You know, you know he showed up on the day, probably read his lines off cue cards, and then was on the golf course by three o'clock. Uh, and it really has that feel. There's such an I mean, I love Dean Martin, and 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 uh, I I do like him in a lot of films, the you know the Rat Pack movies and so on. Even those aren't especially great. Uh, his movie career is is kind of interesting. That you know some things he's more committed to than others, but um, you know here it's his his nonchalance is 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 above and beyond. I think any other film I've seen him in. And what are the titles there? You mentioned the Wrecking Crew. And... Yeah, the Wrecking Crew is the last one. Yeah, and, and, which is. I, I, and it's based on a, the book, but I'm, you know, the Wrecking Crew is also the name of those L.A. studio musicians who played on Dean Martin records. Just a, I don't know if that's a weird coincidence or if it's on purpose or how that came about. But I, I believe the first one is The Silencers, and that's followed by, uh, I think, Murderer's Row, which uh, has Anne Margaret, and she's great, and it's fun to watch her. There's a lot of scenes set in, like, a go-go discotheque. So you got a lot of the scenes of Anne Margaret kind of doing the frug and kind of bopping around. So that's... They, I mean, everyone has something worthwhile about it. Um, the third one is uh, uh, Murderer's Row. And Murderer's Row is actually one I saw as a kid. They, they, it's, the action is set in Mexico. And actually, Dean Martin may have gone to Mexico for some of this because uh, some of the scenes look fairly authentic. But there's a big fight in a brewery. And, and it's actually the Dos Equis brewery. Oh, no kidding. And in the background, you can see, like, the logo for the beer and everything like that. But they, they call it a different, like, for the purposes of the movie it's ole ale or something like that but it's but it's actually they actually did shoot some scenes at the Tosakis brewery in mexico so um i guess that makes it authentic but i do remember like a guy falling into a giant fake mug of beer that's like part of the billboard on top of the building and that's like the imagery from these films that stuck with me ever since i was pretty young like like 10 years old or something like that so it is kind of fun to to revisit that and see that scene all over again and see how much of it i remembered from from being a kid but the the films are pretty slapdash and uh you know, nostalgia wasn't enough to, to make them enjoyable. I yeah, I, I felt sort of similarly about Our Man Flint from 1966. You know, it's an, another American James Bond spoof. Uh, James Coburn, pretty likable actor. He plays the Renaissance man, comes super spy. He's retired. He gets the call to come back to work when a group of eco-terrorist scientists threaten to destroy the Earth with weather weapons. Um, you know, it's not super engaging, but I may be recommended for the spectacular eye-popping 60s sets I mean, they really put money into the look of the thing. And uh, Flint's begrudging boss, Lee Cobb, uh, and the femme fatale, uh, Gila Golan, who makes an impression. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's funny. We're talking about these 60s movies. I think Casino Royale was a surprise how much I liked it. But I would say Where the Spies Are from 66 was maybe the one I liked the most. Yeah, our man Flint, James Coburn is the reason to watch it. He's very cool and he has fun and he looks like he's having fun with it. And, uh, and the sequel again, it's diminishing returns in like Flint is the second film, right? Not as good as the first one. Um, and, and again, you know, more fun for the sixties trappings, the things that actually make it dated are probably what make it watchable now. Uh, but James Coburn, I can watch in it pretty much anything. So <laughs> it's true. So, so, uh, but, but a, an actual good James Coburn film, that's kind of a spy spoof, but also like a, a actually pretty sharp social satire. It's called The President's Analyst, where he plays the the, the president's psychoanalyst who uh, becomes uh, 
I guess he learns a, a bit too much about national security and he becomes a, a security risk and he has to go on the run. And uh, there turns out to be something more menacing at, at work. And it's, uh, it's something within the American corporate structure. And it's actually kind of ahead of its time in a way. And uh, I don't want to say much more about it than that. It is still very much a 60s film, but there's a lot more smarts in the screenplay. And it actually has a, it actually has a point. So uh, of, of all of those films, I, I definitely recommend tracking down The President's Analyst. It's on DVD, at least, and I'm sure it shows up uh, elsewhere. Well, some of the spy spoofs we watched are, are a little more recent. And, and maybe the one that uh, we enjoyed the most, because we watched it together and uh, didn't really know a lot about it going in, is... OSS 117 or OSS 117. And uh, I think uh, it was Cairo Nest of Spies is the English translation. It's um, it's uh, from the team that brought you The Artist, the Academy Award winning uh, silent or partly silent uh, comedy. And uh, it's actually based on a French series of spy movies. I think there were five of them made in the 60s, sort of parallel to James Bond, but they were French. So it was about the French Secret Service. Uh, but it actually predates Bo- the Bond in some ways. The books that they're based on, uh, the first book in the series, and there are many, um, that basically only known to French readers for the most part, uh, actually predates Casino Royale, the first James Bond book. And the first uh, of the OSS Sandyset films uh, came out before Dr. No, the first James Bond movie. So it, it actually ha- has a bit of a head start on the 007 series. Now, it, uh, the films were never had the kind of budgets or, or star power of the Bond films, but they are, they still have a lot of the, the fun spy trappings. It's a little bit more about espionage than gadgets and, and so on, but they, you know, they do manage to work in some pretty egregious 60s sexism and, and so yeah, on. Yeah, the lead, uh, our hero, such as he is, uh, Hubert, is, is a incredibly obnoxious misogynist uh, in a way that, I mean, okay, maybe maybe Sean Connery had a lot of that too, but somehow Sean Connery made made him seem more less less uh, obnoxious. Just I don't know. Just he he was more charming. Whereas the actors, I saw a, a couple of these OSS films as per your collection, Stephen, and uh, I was like, oh, this guy is really unpleasant, um, and you know, he just he just is very smug. And I think maybe that was it. It's just like there's a smugness about him, a a self righteousness that that uh, uh, you know uh, that 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 does not appeal. Yet he is the hero, the ostensible protagonist yeah. in the stories. Well, there were five films, and they had three different actors playing the character over the course of the film. So he does change, you know, over the course of time a little bit. Um, the last actor to play him in the '60s run was John Gavin, an American actor who was in Hitchcock's Psycho. And, uh, you know, and another lesser Hitchcock, uh, Topaz. And he, he was kind of a middling, uh, kind of American star, um, in the, in the sixties, but he ended up doing a lot of w- more work in, in Europe, which was the case for a lot of sort of American movie stars that didn't quite have what it took to become a breakout top of the line movie star. Um, and, and that one, uh, you know, he's probably the best of the bunch. He's probably the best actor because the guy who did sort of three and four wasn't really an actor. He was more of a George Lazenby right. like model type that the producers saw, saw in him. I don't know if they saw him in a magazine or a Czech, he was a Czechoslovakian, but they gave him a, a British name of George Stafford or something like that. And, uh, and he's actually better than you'd expect, but of course he's dubbed by another actor anyway. So I don't know how good he, he was or wasn't. Um, I think I, in fact, I think all the actors are dubbed, um, in, in the French films. So, 
not in the English, mind you, the American, uh, Kerwin Matthews is another American actor, plays him in the first uh, film or two, and he's dubbed into French too, so go figure. But um, apparently there was enough fondness for this character that he was brought back to life in uh, in the new millennium <laughs> um, by the, the team behind the artist. Um, Michael so Hasvenicius. Hasvenicius and uh, Jean Dujardin, the, uh, the charming star from the actor, uh, from the artist. From the artist, sorry. Uh, yeah, who's, yeah. It was very expressive and very funny, and 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 we laughed quite a bit at these films. Uh, yeah, you know, the first, well, having been introduced to the original series, I was like, okay, so that's very, it's very serious. It's very po-faced, mostly. I mean, uh, spy stuff uh, with some international locations, so in that way, it, it's similar to Bond. But but this new one is, is they are absolutely embracing all the cheese and all the um, the fun that can be had from a spy series for laughs, uh, and uh, it is, for my money, it was is maybe the funniest spy spoof I think I've seen. Um, just by just for laughs per minute, like they are they are really going for it. Jean Dujardin has that incredible sort of like you know smile, and he's so charming, and he's but he plays a, an, another you know complete buffoon. He is. He is, unlike Bond, he knows nothing about anywhere he's going to. He just has this, this like, confidence in his, like, French colonialism, which is very much skewered in these yes. films. And um, and then he is, uh, he's paired with Berenice Bejo, who is also in The Artist. She is great. Uh, and the two of them have a great chemistry. And she plays this sort of Egyptian, um, you know, uh, uh, a woman who is also working there. And the, the plot, again, is a little peculiar. He's a friend of, of uh, Hubert, uh, uh, Bonisseur de la Bath, a.k.a. <laughs> OSS 117, um, is uh, he, he goes to Cairo to find out what happened to his friend who's been working as a spy there, and his cover is that he was in charge of a chicken factory. <laughs> so there's a lot of great poultry jokes as a result. Uh, Dujardin is an, is, plays, yeah, to, total idiot, but he, is, um, he still has certain skills. He teaches himself how to re read hieroglyphics, for instance. Um, <laughs> but he is, he is so likable, uh, and, you know, and it goes a long way. And then it's not just physical comedy. There's a lot of sophisticated stuff under the surface as well. Um, yeah, I just found it to be so much fun. And I don't know if I mentioned this, it's set in the 60s. So it's very much a throwback. They want to make the film look like films that were made in the 60s. So there's a lot of back projection when people are driving. There's a lot of jazz jazz on the soundtrack and the, the costumes and the sets are all really clearly they sunk a lot of money into the the production values here and it really works i i uh, i was so charmed by by this film yeah i've ordered a copy of the sequel so i'm looking forward to see the second film i don't think there's going to be a third uh, i haven't anything about it anyway but uh I, you know if the second one's any good i mean even if it's not quite as good as the first one it'll still be pretty funny i would hope um but uh yeah it, it has has a real nice energy and snap and uh to it and uh, jean dujardin you know, his character, his version of OSS Sandyset loves being a spy. There's nothing, he just loves being a spy, even though he, he, you know, he doesn't know anything about, you know, Arabic culture while he's, you know, running around Cairo uh, and doesn't care to know, you know, uh, except for learning hieroglyphics. But, uh, but the, you know, his sort of, his patronizing, uh, like you say, colonial uh, ignorance is, is play, put, played to good use. And, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, being able to make fun of those kind of attitudes um, pays off really well here. I mean, obviously, 
Austin Powers kind of did the same thing, but it was it was more goofy and over the top. And here, the goofiness is tempered somewhat, I guess, maybe by the more faithful look of the film or, or something. I don't know that you know that sometimes Austin Powers kind of blurs the era between like Carnaby Street early '60s and Summer of Love hippie stuff, and it kind of creates its own little universe. But here, I I, I feel like we're firmly in like the pre hippie '60s and. Uh, and, and uh, just uh, having a ball with it. Yeah, yeah, and I think that uh, Ubert's uh, so he has he has a little bit of homosexual panic while also indulging in these hilarious homoerotic beach scenes where he flashes back to times with his buddy and they're they're playing paddle ball on the beach and laughing uproariously at nothing. I just it just killed me. All that stuff was so funny. Yeah, it was just it, it was. I mean, it's. It, they know we're making a comedy, so it's going to be comedic, but we just we need to know when to pull back and when to kind of go for it. And uh, yeah, the the tone of it, I just thought they just got it just right, just right. Yeah. So I, when you get the new film, I am totally up for watching. Oh yeah, that. me too. So uh, yeah, you can, and I think you can find like DVDs that have one and two, the two films uh, in one package, like for ten bucks on Amazon or whatever. So yeah, or you know, at your local library or whatever. <laughs> um, now we also watched a, a couple of more recent films in this genre. Uh, I think, yeah, I think OSS Saint Dicet, uh, Cairo Nesta Spies, maybe our favorite, as you said. Uh, I also We also watched The Spy Who Dumped Me. That's from earlier this year. It's written and directed by Susanna Fogel. It starts, stars Kate McKinnon uh, and Mila Kunis, both of whom are pretty big comedy uh, stars right now. And it's basically the story. Kunis plays Audrey, who she plays a lot of video games in bars, especially first-person shooters, which is a little weird. But anyway, <laughs> um, her bestie is Morgan, played by McKinnon. And... Uh, Naturally, they live in Los Angeles, where Audrey dates a guy named Drew, who is one of my least favorite leading men, Justin Thoreau. Guy's uh, everywhere. He is everywhere. <laughs> uh, but then we, from the get-go, we see he's a super spy with crazy action skills. He's just broken up by text with Audrey, but before long, Audrey has pieced together he's a spy and that she has an important MacGuffin that she has to get to Vienna and meet Drew's contact. And it was one of those comedies that doesn't do much to set up the characters in advance. I kept thinking if a film like this had been made in the 80s or earlier, we would have probably spent more time with the women and learn about their friendship before the plot really kicked in. But we don't have any time for that these days. So uh, it's there's an odd laugh. I, I, I did like some of the fish out of water stuff where there were gallivanting around Europe and uh, I Jillian Anderson shows up again so that's two spice <laughs> yes. she's she's in that I that we watched in this uh, you know in this segment um, or in this uh, for this chat but uh, I really obviously M- Kunis and McKinnon are both great and they they uh, obviously as we go along it turns out they have very they have pretty good skills to be spies I mean they survive some major you know assassination attempts on their lives um, I don't know that it's a good movie it has a few solid action sequences to recommend it but uh, you know if you're gonna watch it keep your expectations pretty low yeah Kate McKinnon is definitely the secret weapon here like anytime she's doing something just her own little bit on screen she she really kind of sells it and, and gets into it the whole the whole sort of thing with her crushing on on uh on Gillian Anderson I thought was <laughs> yeah. pretty pretty great yeah um, I like that too I know, there's a, a really weird chemistry going on there that I really enjoyed um and and some of the scrapes they get into and the way they react to them are are kind of funny and and played well you know as well as possible for 
you know, two people who are not trained to use weapons or, you know, do espionage or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and, uh, yeah. And the, and the location stuff is fun. Um, so it's, it's, it's probably less than some of its parts, but, uh, but when it works, it works. But I, yeah, I guess, I guess I feel the same way about this as I did about Johnny English strikes again. Maybe I probably like this a little more just because of the chemistry between the two leads and, and the friendship. And you know, I, I could easily see them being in another film, maybe not another sequel to this or anything like that, but, but they worked well enough together and were believable enough as friends that that part of the film at least kind of carries the weight throughout. But, yeah. uh, but yeah. uh, it, it could have been stronger, maybe a better plot, maybe lack of Justin Thoreau. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's really funny is that at the uh, watching the Matt Helm movies, of course, you know the the DVDs start and you know, they've got these trailers that you kind of have to skip through, and every one of them had a trailer for the second Charlie's Angels movie, which oh, I guess yeah. we could have watched for the <laughs> yeah, you know, I guess it kind of qualifies. Yeah. You know, I guess in the TV show they were solving crimes, but they're kind of become super spies in the the reboot with uh, Drew Barrymore and Lucy Liu. Yeah, and uh, Cameron Diaz, but of course Justin Thoreau, I think, was the bad guy in the second one. Okay, so, I forgot. You know, with the fact. he's got the faux hawk and a bad Irish accent. Uh, I don't know if he was like an IRA bad guy or what. I, like it's been so long since I saw that and tried to forget it. Full throttle, Charlie's Angels, but <laughs> but the trailer almost made me want to watch it again because I remember like, oh, some of this was kind of fun, but uh, but some of it was just kind of ridiculous but I, I'd be curious to see how it aged um, you know that was kind of the interesting thing about watching uh, I Spy which um, I watched because uh, one of the other films we were talking about uh, vanished from Netflix overnight I started watching it last night this morning it was gone that uh, is so weird I don't understand how that even works well it's, I, I, I've seen other people on Facebook say similar things so I guess it does happen like yeah. obviously things get taken off Netflix but uh, you, you think not while you're in the middle of watching it or maybe from between month to month or something yeah like exactly to the end of the month right but uh, but yeah it was uh, Central Intelligence was gone we, we'll talk about it because I did see you know a chunk of it but uh, but I, I did watch I Spy finally with Owen Wilson and Eddie Murphy and uh, you know I was kind of curious about it because uh, you know the of course, the original series was a landmark series, uh, you know, because it had Bill Cosby as, as kind of the first uh, black actor in the leading role of a regular action TV series and uh, with Robert Culp. And they were, uh, you know, of course, you know, they're hard to watch now for obvious reasons, but but it was a groundbreaking show at the time. And they did a lot of travel and a lot of location shooting. And that gave it a different look and a different kind of feel than other shows than Mission Impossible and other shows that were on the air. So they got revived for a one one off uh, reboot with uh, Owen Wilson and uh, Eddie Murphy. Uh, Eddie Murphy plays a boxer who gets asked to take part in a, in a secret mission because he's going to be fighting this uh, bout in uh, Budapest. And Owen Wilson is kind of like a junior spy who is sort of inept. He's not quite a Johnny English level bumbler, but he he's he 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 has makes poor decisions. <laughs> he makes poor choices and, and is a bit naive for somebody who's in the espionage game. Uh, and, uh, it, it's, it's, it's got some great, they shot in, in Budapest and it looks great. And, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy gets to, it looks like he's, you know, gets to improv a little bit, which is fun. Uh, it's nice to see brash Eddie. Cause we ha really have not seen like a, like a great comedic role from Eddie Murphy in some time. Um, you know, tower heist was the last time I can think of, you know, classic Eddie Murphy in a fairly recent film. Uh, but I Spy goes back to what, 2003? 2000, yeah, 2002, 2003. It's like early millennium. Uh, and, and parts of it haven't aged well. For a while there, Eddie Murphy is uses the R word to describe Owen Wilson, saying he's like uh, the president's nephew with uh, 
so shall we say developmentally challenged uh and uh, there's some there's some some creepy kind of almost sexual assault uh that's supposed to be charming and kind of romantic but is not uh at, at this in this day and age uh but of course that's true of any old spy movie i suppose but you're used to it from a 60s or 70s bond film maybe not so much from a, a spy spoof from 15 years ago um but but it does have its fun moments. Uh, Malcolm Malcolm McDowell is the bad guy. He's an arms dealer who's uh, got a hold of a secret uh, invisible U.S. plane that he's trying to sell to the highest bidder, and that's the MacGuffin that they're trying to stop the sale of the plane and get it back. And there's double crosses and Gary Cole, who of course is a uh, you know comedic uh, scene stealer, shows up as Carlos, the ponytailed, uh, super sexy super spy who everybody right. who who Owen Wilson just hates all the pieces and. And so that that's you know Gary Cole is always good for for a few laughs. So it's on Netflix now. You can you can check it out if you didn't catch it uh, back in the day. It's interesting to see how a film that still feels fairly recent, but also feels like it's from another era at the same time. But uh, but but you know it's and it's got some fun car chases and stuff. It does it it crosses all the all the T's and dots all the I's. I I, <laughs> I hope uh, I hope all the I spies. I, I hope it's still on Netflix because, as you mentioned, that's uh, true. Films can just vanish. I did manage to see all of Central Intelligence, and I was quite charmed by the film. I mean, it's it's got some issues, but for the most part, I thought it was very funny and largely due to Dwayne the Rock Johnson, who plays Robert Weir Dick, uh, an <laughs> overweight nerd in high school. Uh, who is treated kindly by Calvin Joyner, played by Kevin Hart, who was the most popular guy in class. 20 years later, Calvin is an accountant who never rose as far as he'd hoped, while Robert is now Bob Stone. He's pumped, and he's a super capable secret agent on the run from the CIA, uh, but uh, which leaves Calvin in a tough spot. Does he believe his old high school classmate, or does he try to stop him? Um, the script keeps us guessing until late in the running as to what's actually going on, and, and The Rock is amazing, playing a guy who is both super positive and super in some ways naive but is he just manipulating everyone around him to believe that he's naive when he's actually an absolutely hardcore capable secret agent it's uh it was a pretty fun movie and i really like the the sort of chemistry between the two leads yeah it's probably the best kevin hart movie to date uh you know he's a guy that is you know very funny stand-up very funny person uh having recently seen night school uh <laughs> And a couple of the other films, this is the the film where he's put to best use, uh, and it's because uh, he has somebody to play off of. That's you know in the person of Dwayne Johnson. Uh, so hopefully, maybe they'll take a note from that for future uh, future Kevin Hart projects. Well, that wraps up our look at spy spoofs, spy comedies, espionage uh, humor from uh, from from all over the place, from certainly from Hollywood and Britain and France. Uh, there's a lot more out there. There's some very funny uh, Hong Kong uh, action comedies in the same kind of vein. If you want to, Jackie uh, Chan has made a couple of them. Jackie Chan, uh, the accidental spy, um, and, and there's, there's one called From Beijing with Love. Uh, that is worth uh, tracking down with, uh, I think, Stephen Chow is the star of that one, if you can find it anywhere. Uh, and, uh, it's you know, it's it's a... I love spy movies, and I love movies that make fun of spy movies. So it's uh, it's it's kind of a kind of a win-win. I hope you like the show, and, and we'll check out some of these uh, forgotten gems, if you will. Um, of course, my name is Stephen Cook, and uh, you can find me online at... NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E that's on Twitter yeah I'm on Twitter as well the name of my blog is Flaw on the Iris and that's where you can find me we're also on Facebook and uh, we've got a Twitter account as well through the show Lends Me Your Ears 
And we have a Patreon if you feel like supporting us in some way with some small financial recompense. And as always, we'd like to thank uh, the folks up here at CKDU FM 88.1, where they air this show every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m., and Village Soundcast Network for putting on the finishing touches every week and making it sound so good. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Ciao. Cheers. Adios. Arrivederci. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.